I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello there. Thanks for jamming your thumb on the play button. Welcome to Writer's Routine. This is the podcast where we take a look at how creative people get their ideas down on paper and how they get through the day. Well, normally that's what we do. Today, something a little bit different. We're talking to Peter Fellows, and he co-wrote the huge hit film from last year, The Death of Stalin, uh, and he wrote that with David Schneider, Ian Martin, and Armando Iannucci. And we talk about what it's like to work with Armando, one of the UK's most successful comedy writers and producers. Uh, He always talks about the writing process as, as a bit like a stock where you kind of put everything in and it's huge and long and then you just tighten it down and then you put everything in again and then you just tighten it down and then you go into rehearsals and it gets the script gets really long again and everyone in production panics because suddenly you're working with a 200 page script and they're going shit we've got six weeks to shoot this and then you gradually just you just tighten it down and it's this sort of delicious textured soup <laughs> Um, at the end of it, hopefully. Also, quick warning, I'll say it now to get in the open, and I can't say it clear enough than this. This is a sweary episode. I guess that's what happens when you sit a comedy writer down for an hour with a microphone and give them free reign to say whatever they want. So, yeah, if you're easily offended, or if you have kids nearby, uh, press pause. You can skim through this later, whatever. You have been warned. It is a sweary one. But it's fine, though, because that sort of language helps us to find out what Peter really thinks about choosing the easy option and just making the easiest joke possible. There's this great thing someone said about, like, the comedy bus. You know, you, the, if you're on the comedy bus, the easiest thing to do is get off at the first stop, you know, make the obvious joke. And there are comedians who do that. And I, I sometimes think about, like, those kind of broad American comedies feel a bit like that where they've got off at the first joke, which is basically make a dick joke, make a shit joke. Whereas if you just push it a bit further, and that's the benefit of having lots of writers, is that, you know, one of us could write a shit joke, but then the next one, when it when the script gets passed to the next writer, they might look at that and they might go, oh, that that's made me think of something else that's not a shit joke. So if you love your British comedy and you want to find out how to tell the perfect joke, stay there. It's all on the way on this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, hello. Thank you so much for being there. My name is Dan Simpson. Uh, Cheers for downloading episode 26 now 
of writer's routine. This is the show where we unpack a writer's working day to try and squeeze out all the little nuances and intricacies that they do. Perhaps it can help us with our own work. And we've got something a little bit different today. I'll get onto that more in just a sec. First, allow me to indulge for just a few seconds on the show. Now, there were a few reasons why I started doing the podcast, you know, uh, thinking of authors to chat to, reading their books, writing questions to ask them, sorting out the interviews with the publishers, uh, recording them, editing them on the show, finding somewhere to put it, uh, doing all that, publishing it. It's surprisingly quite a laborious hobby. Now, in my day job, uh, I was chatting to a lot of authors anyway, uh, and I always found that they had the most to tell me about their work because they'd spent the best part of two years writing a book. Uh, So they were quite keen to tell me something interesting to try and flog it. And also, I had picked up and put down my pen so many times to work on my own book, I I wanted any help on persistence that I could get uh, to keep writing, to see it through to to the last page so I could actually put those words at the end down on paper. I I thought that these words of advice might be useful to a whole community of writers online who were struggling to move their ideas onto paper and to get noticed. Now, with that in mind, listen to this review of the show on the iTunes podcast store. It's by Wellmax81. Quick question, is it a little bit twee and needy to thank reviewers by name? I guess it's my show. I can do whatever I want. This is what Wellmax has said. I've had an idea for a book for over 15 years, and after a lot of non-starters, I found that this show really inspired me to get my bum into gear. I mean, that's it. Done it right there. That review says everything I want to say about this show to people who maybe haven't listened to us yet. You know, someone who has struggled to write for over 15 years, listened to a successful author who had been there, had trouble just like that, but managed to push through it and write the words, the end, and then they got it published. They got words of advice from those authors and it inspired them to push on. And that means so much. Thank you so much for that. And if you've got a similar story about how some author's advice that you heard on this show helped you finally push on and finish that book that you've been working on for so many years, but you keep finding reasons not to quite get on with it, well, I'd love to hear how it's helped you. Doing it on the iTunes podcast store is probably the best of both worlds because it can lift uh, the show up the charts on there and it can let me know that this work is going to some use and I can say it on the show in the next few weeks maybe. So please go ahead, do that. Find Writer's Routine on the iTunes podcast store and leave us a review. So The Death of Stalin is a film that was released in 2017. It tells the story of exactly what the title says, of Joseph Stalin, the premier of the Soviet Union, just dropping dead. Uh, And then it follows up the kind of manic and misinformed fallout of what happens next. It's got some cast list as well. Have a listen to this if you've not quite seen it yet. Steve Buscemi's in it, Jeffrey Tambor, Jason Isaacs, hello to him, Uh, Rupert Friend, Paddy Considine, Andrea Riseborough, Paul Whitehouse, off of the far show, the master of impressions. Uh, I think he is the guy that Johnny Depp said is his favourite actor ever. Well, he's in it as well, and he pulls in a brilliant turn too. And it was written because Armando Iannucci felt that Stalin had really gotten away with just how brutal and vile he really was. And it's a film that is hysterically funny, but it's also got this dark, sinister edge that a story about Stalin really needs. And Armando co-wrote the film with David Schneider, Ian Martin and Peter Fellows. 
Now, Peter is our guest on the show today. He's written and directed his own short films in series two. He's a co-writer on Veep. That's another Ianucci series, which has won tons of awards in the States. It's all about Julia Louis-Dreyfus off of Seinfeld as the vice president uh, of the United States. And because of that, uh, because Peter has found most of his success recently, astronomical success, by the way, when you think he's not even 30, as a co-writer on screenplays, and because it's not a novel that you can pick up in the bookshops, it's a little bit of a different episode today. It's not so much the writer's routine of a novelist's working day, it's more the, the writing routine of a screenplay how it goes from elevator pitch to fleshed out behemoth, uh, and then to screen finally, and more often than not, they're still working on it when it's being filmed. Peter will tell stories about how they're writing jokes, pitching them to actors on the set. We talk about what it's like writing those gags for one of the UK's greatest comedy minds. Also, how you try and get some of the most famous actors in the world to tell the jokes that you have written for them. And we talk about the places that he doesn't want to go in his comedy too. We've also got one top writing tip that may change the way you work forever uh, from a novelist who's just written his debut adult thriller. That's in a sec. Stay right there because we start this week's episode with Peter Fellows talking about how he first got involved in working on The Death of Stalin with Armando Iannucci. All of this stuff, you know, it's come, it comes from Armando and then he brings us all on board to sort of play around with the ideas, but... You know, I don't think it's... You don't really think about um, projects in that way where you go, what is this going to be at the end? You sort of just work on it day by day. It's it's very hard to imagine it in a sort of like, you know, three years from now, we'll be opening in the, in the States or whatever. Um, so it's... That's kind of a hard question. I mean, you, I think you just literally like... In, from my perspective, it's like when he first was like, oh, can you do a pass on this? Write some jokes. It was just like shit I need to just like write these jokes then <laughs> so my intention is then that he likes the jokes <laughs> so well then talk to me about that then when was the first so when are we sat down now um what is it the 28th of March the 28th of March 2018 when was the first time that you knew what this was when was the first mention uh, of it from Armando to you first I think the first bit of work that I did on it was about mid-March 2015 we sort of wrote it gradually over the next um, year and a, year and a bit. Well, so, what guys did it take then? Back three years ago, in the middle of March, twenty fifteen, what, what, what was it pitched to you as? It was a well. It, it, it the, the the film itself is a is um, technically an adaptation of a French graphic novel, um, which is now available in English if it's of interest to anyone. And um, it had been kind of transcribed into a a final draft document script document which then was what we were sort of working from it was like a kind of long script i don't know it was like a long like first draft it was a good first draft because it you know the the guy who wrote it fabian nuri had obviously done like years of research and everything when he was writing the graphic novel so um it was already like in quite a strong place but I think because of Armando's process, we sort of tear everything up and then start again and go back to the books and research from the, from the start and just keep reworking it. Like He always talks about the writing process as, as a bit like a stock where you kind of put everything in and it's huge and long and then you just tighten it down and then you put everything in again and then you just tighten it down 
And then you go into rehearsals and it gets the script gets really long again and everyone in production panics because suddenly you're working with a 200-page script and they're going, shit, we've got six weeks to shoot this. And then you gradually just, you just tighten it down and it's this sort of delicious textured soup <laughs> um, at the end of it, hopefully. You mentioned that um, you were given this to say, write some jokes for me. What do you do then? You're, you're working with one of the biggest names in certainly British comedy. How do you sit down and write jokes for him? Um, well, I mean, I'd com- I know it sounds such a pathetically simple question, but, <laughs> but talk me through the, the nuance of how you're writing that joke. So I'd come off the back of Veep, which is, you know, and the thing that, we, that I'd done a lot of on Veep was writing dialogue gags. What Arm likes to, to have is options. So um, usually he will go through the script and write kind of quite broad notes, like just under, under certain lines of dialogue, saying things like funnier, shorter, alts, more colour, Sometimes just no, which is good. <laughs> um, and then I try and come up with like sort of four or five just options. So four or five new jokes or new dialogue lines that are maybe one that's sort of similar to the line that's there before, you know, kind of has the same concept. Um So I don't know if the joke was like, if the original line was like... um what's up with your hair, you know, and he'd written a note saying more colour. You say, why does your hair look like it's been fucking scraped across the floor? And then you could write another alt, which sort of comes at, it, comes at it from a different angle, which isn't about the hair per se, but like the overall appearance or, you know, smell. Why do you smell like a, you know, whatever. Yeah, don't, don't, um, don't, don't finish that. <laughs> That'd be good. So I guess... What I'm asking is, is there a factory in your brain for this kind of stuff? So is there somewhere that you can tap into where you've got a whole bank of almost gags that are ready to go? Or, or, you know, you've got like a flow chart in your brain of, right, does this gag need to be a, does it need to be a one line or does it need to be a callback joke? How are you working through all of that? Um, I don't know. You just, sometimes it's like you sort of get the essence of what the joke is going to be. And then you write it out long form. Well, I write it out long form and it's like a, a paragraph, basically. And it's like, this needs to be like a snappy one-liner, but like there's something in this idea. Um, and, and then you sort of just try and kind of chop away at it and find the, the, the funniest way of saying that, but also trying to keep in mind that it's your character's voice. So you don't want it to sound like you. You know, you don't want it to sound like you saying a, a, a snappy one-liner. You want it to sound like um, Steve Buscemi playing Khrushchev saying a snappy one-liner. What sounds natural? When we speak, we don't... I don't know, like that sentence just then. When we speak, I don't know, uh, that sentence just then. You know, you think that's not clean. But you, you can sort of find the pauses which make things funny. And sometimes you find the pauses and make it feel natural by taking out a word and putting in a comma. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's literally just playing with the words and then on set, when we're working, when we are much further down the, down the line and we're pitching the jokes too often directly to the actor or to Armando when he's directing, it's just, you know, a lot of that is in the performance of how you say it. You know, you can't just read out a dry selection of like one liners and make it sort of sound like you're just speaking in a monotone fashion. 
if you're listing, I don't know, listing, do not use a knife to open this case, do not open this side, hoover, bag, chair, you know, you have to put something into it. Um, and I, I mean, in that situation, I, I actually quite like, I don't know if all actors like this, but I quite like trying to do it in the actor's voice, like the character's voice. So if it's like a Jeffrey Tambor line, you know, the line could just be something that sort of seems by itself not that funny. So what are you doing? You know, but put it in Jeffrey Tambor's voice. What are you doing? <laughs> and suddenly it's, fu- it's sort of funny. If it was like you could turn that into a much longer line, you know, immediately what the fuck are you doing is longer. But you don't need the the fuck because his character, him doing that character is going to make it funnier by saying less. There's another interesting thing. Uh, about the addition of the fuck. So I think in a, in a little bit, we'll kind of get into places that you don't go to in, in comedy because sure. you think it's, I don't know, maybe it's beneath you. Oh yeah, sorry, are we even allowed to swear on this? Yeah, that's yeah, fine. <laughs> but not normally, but we've said it, done it so much that I just have to stick one of those explicit things at the start. Yeah, okay, good. Um, <laughs> talking about the person who's, ta- who's saying the joke, mm-hmm. what's it like being thrown straight into the project saying right here's a script write me a joke for that when you've not really got the context of what it's like who you're writing a joke for how do you work with that you sort of try and just find a voice for them and often often the first few drafts it feels like you could almost just swap the character names around you know unless you have a very it it depends on the project i think i think with um armando's stuff usually at the start you're kind of finding the voices still and then you it's like this whole long process where you sort of gradually find it by redrafting and then you start casting actors and then you have the actors in mind and then you you sort of rewrite it to what you sort of think of their voice being and then you actually meet them and you rehearse and you talk about the script and then you rewrite it again to actually fit what they're doing with the character but you know for my own stuff I try and before I write any actual script pages i try and come come to the script page with very clear characters in mind and then often the first few drafts end up being very um kind of atypical archetype characters so you know posh guy um californian girl you know and you have ideas about how those people would speak but then gradually their voices become more nuanced by redrafting it because you you get to know the characters and you understand who they are more within yourself and then you're able to give them ticks and nuances and interesting. Do you reckon the characters that you, you write, do you know enough about them to tell their story outside of the thing you're trying to put onto a screen? Yeah, well, someone someone told me, maybe I heard it on a podcast or something, but it's this this idea that every single character should deserve their own story. You know, they should deserve their own sitcom or their own film or their own novel like every single character. And if every single character is that interesting, then A, you're probably going to be able to cast it quite easily because actors will love it. Um, and B, it just makes for a more realistic film or TV show at the end of it because it's people are kind of complex, you know, rather than... It's, it's sort of thinking in that way of going, rather than just calling someone man too or whatever, think, oh, if, if we've got this guy appearing six times throughout the film... What is he? You know, what's he? What is it about him that's kind of funny? What ser- what what purpose is he serving? You know, so like in the death of Stalin, um, there are two guards standing outside Stalin's um, office, and when Stalin collapses, we kind of come back to these two guys a couple of times throughout the film, and we're seeing 
we sort of they have their own little story we gave them enough to do in the script that you get a sense of who both of them are as characters you know and another way you could frame that whole thing is you could have like a 30 minute sitcom about those two guys just you know waiting for godot basically (laughs) standing outside stalin's office um terrified of what might happen at any moment if the if the big man loses his shit um so you know it's it's that it's just trying to think of handle every character with with a bit of um humanity it wasn't like a writer's room in the in the typical sense for this film because um originally david came on and sort of did the first heavy lifting pass on the script so there was that pre-existing one that i mentioned and then um i did a kind of pass on it to gag it up a bit i think just to get start getting into the um the voice of it then he came on and did like a big heavy lifting pass and then from there it sort of you know you sort of have drafts which serve their purpose at the time so armando needed to deliver a draft to the producers so then we kind of worked on that um i think both me and david sort of went through it and did a separate pass of just like gags just like throwing as many gags as possible and then arm takes it back and kind of goes through it does the selects and then we tighten the script up and then that's you try and just get it funny and readable and it might not be quite the right the structure might not quite be in the right um order at that point um and you know you might still have characters that end up not being in the final film you know you cut characters you add stuff or whatever but um at that stage it's kind of going look it's going in the right direction so we need to move forward we need to get financing and um once you get financing you then you know it's that process of getting actors on board and with each of the actors that we approached for the main cast we did um a kind of character voice pass on each of them so before it goes out to Simon Russell Beale, for example, who played Beria, we did a pass on Beria, just like thinking, how you know, how would he sound? So that means you're reading through the whole script just through his point of view. Just from yes, basically, and just looking for any moment where he's in the in the script and just pulling that out a little bit, and you know, giving him something to do, making sure he's not just standing there saying nothing in a scene, um, and um, giving him giving him texture, giving him color, basically. So that, you know, ideally the actor will read it and go, oh, great, this is a quite an interesting part or a funny part. Um, so anyway, so David, David did the first, like, he was around for the first few months and then um, he had to go off and direct Josh Widdicombe's show, Josh. Um, and so that's when Ian Martin came on and then he was sort of, you know, we then sort of restructured it all a little bit again and played around with... Um, where a couple of certain scenes were going to end up. You know, you always get to this stage where it always feels like there's one scene too many somehow. Um, And what always ends up happening usually is that you do shoot it, but then it just comes out in the edit and it's really obvious in the edit where it, which scene should have been cut. Does it sound, is it a lot more coherent than it sounds as in the process? Because you've got one writer who's there for half the time, then he flies away to go and direct something. So you've got another one coming in to almost take his place. Is this taken into account when you first have that idea, you know that it's not going to be the most linear process? Um, I think with Armando stuff, you always assume that it's going to be like that and there's going to be lots of other writers around and stuff. But I mean, the thing is, the, the thing that remains consistent is Armando. You know, he has an idea 
in his mind of what it's going to be at the end. And, you know, we're all sort of working and it's like he, you know, he, he filters all this stuff through all these, you know, the different writers and the different writers' voices and then comes out, hopefully, with this sort of, this very textured, um, layered film. But, you know, he is the consistent thing in terms of the tone. He knows what the tone is. So each time any of us did a rewrite on the script, you know, we're submitting it to him. And if it doesn't fit the tone that he wants it to be, then he'll send it to one of the other writers or we'll rewrite it. Is that tone explained to you at the very start? Is he like, look, this is what it needs to be? I think you kind of get to it gradually. It's very organic. You know, it's sort of you just gradually find it. Um and it's just in rewriting. I mean, like with 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 the the script, we probably did like probably I don't know like thirty five like total probably rewrites on it, pretty much. In terms of like dialogue that was there from the first draft, I think there were like maybe two lines left or something. And you know, when once we get into rehearsals, we then rewrite it anyway for and sort of feed in improv and stuff that we've done with the actors. When we're on set, we then keep rewriting it. <laughs> and then in the edit, we rewrite it. So it's, it's like this ongoing process right to the very, very end. Stay there. We've got more from Peter Fellows in just a sec. And next, one writing tip that may change the way you work forever. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I've got a real good writing tip that may change the way you work forever uh, in just a sec. It's a real thoughtful one from the debut crime novelist MJ Ford. Before we get there, let me remind you that there are so many ways that you can keep up with the show. Now, if you listened to us last week, uh, I said I wasn't being lazy. Do you remember this? And I said that I was finally pulling my finger out to do all the social stuff that you need to do for a podcast every single day. And get this, I'm sticking to it. More or less. I mean, I've had a, a few days out, but come on, one of those was Easter. So you've got to forgive me for that. I could barely see my laptop for mini eggs. Remember, you can get tips, tricks and advice on Twitter. We're at WritersPod on there. Also on Instagram, you can get glossier versions of the stuff that we put on Twitter on that. Uh, it's Writers Routine on Instagram. 
And you can get every single way to listen to the show. You can hear all of our old episodes and you can get in touch with us too over at writersroutine.com. So every week on the show, slap bang in the middle of the main author chat, we're trying to get like a nice little mini author chat going. But this has got just one goal in mind. It's got none of the other flim flam peripheral faff uh, that the rest of the show's got. Now, this is for you to get one tip that may change the way you write forever. Today, it's with MJ Ford. Uh, He's an editor who has always worked with words. He's penned kids' books. He's ghostwritten for celebrities. And his first adult thriller, Hold My Hand, it's just been released. And this week, he's got a few words about who you should actually be writing for. Hi, I'm MJ Ford, author of Hold My Hand. Um, I have a tip for uh, aspiring writers um, based on my own experience. And that is to write for yourself not for other people. Don't try to uh, ape books that are out there. Don't try and jump onto a trend or enter the zeitgeist based on what's popular at the moment. Certainly, it won't make the writing experience particularly happy because you'll be making compromises creatively. Um, And equally, by the time your book uh, is sold to a publisher and comes out, that trend that you were so keen to jump on board will probably have passed. If you like that, you can get a more fleshed out chat with Michael and hear about the very first idea he had for his debut adult thriller, Hold My Hand, by listening to the latest episode, number 25 of Writer's Routine. You can find that over on iTunes, you know, wherever you get your podcast from or on all the normal places. And you can have a listen over at writersroutine.com. Right, let's get back to part two of our chat then with Peter Fellows, the co-writer of the hugely successful comedy The Death of Stalin. Remember, he's not even 30 and he's worked on one of the biggest films of last year. Also, the American TV show Veep, which has been given tons of awards over in America. Uh, And that means he has written jokes for Julia Louis-Dreyfus, one of the most famous comedy actresses in sitcom history. He wrote Stalin with David Schneider, Ian Martin, Armando Iannucci, who helped co-create I'm Alan Partridge, The Thick of It. And for this film, uh, Peter was writing a lot of jokes and pitching them all to Armando. And he was also running passes through the script, cutting a lot out along the way. And we pick things up by kind of getting to the nub of what this podcast really is about. You know, the writing process, how you get an idea from your head down onto paper and what it's like to do that when you're working on a film. You hear about like people's different processes and stuff, and and a lot of people rely on things like this. Uh, what's it called? Save the Cat, and like you know the Sid Field book, and there are these sort of books about structure and how you are supposed to write a screenplay. But I don't know. I, it, it's never worked for me, and I I don't think Armando's ever read any of them. Um, I'm pre- pretty sure Ian Martin definitely hasn't. It's like an instinctive thing. You just know, you just feel it. And it's, some of that comes from when you read through a draft yourself, you feel like, oh, that something's not paying off here. Um, or we're the end, we suddenly rush to the end and it feels like the third, the third act, if you want to call them acts, suddenly is over before we've really got to enjoy it. You get some of that from when you start doing read-throughs and stuff. You you feel the pace when it when it's coming out of actors' mouths. You feel the pace and you feel oh right, that's that happens. There's a huge long bit in the middle here which feels like nothing's happening. There are no more inciting incidents, so it's just sort of we're sort of breezing along. But in terms of like actually how you you know how you start, you basically just start by 
just like spaffing out ideas onto a document and just as many ideas as possible and going away and doing tons of research. Like the best comedy I always think is bedded in reality. And, you know, you find stuff, you always have like ideas about kind of, oh, if we're doing a comedy about um, set in Ikea or something, you'll have like the basic kind of things that everyone knows about Ikea, which are feel like, oh, right, you could kind of put those jokes in or you could have these types of characters who are the sort of people you expect to work in a furniture shop. But then once you actually do research and you start talking to the people who work there, you'll find out all this other much more kind of interesting, quiet comedy that goes on in the backgrounds that people don't think about. Um, and it's always that's always the better stuff almost. And so with with something like Stalin, you, we just went back and read I don't know, a couple of dozen books, really, and just pulled out anything that felt like it was relevant or kind of dramatically interesting or um, funny. So, for example, Stalin's son, um, who's played by Rupert Friend in the film, was an alcoholic. But he was also in charge of the national ice hockey team. And he... Um, at one point demanded that they flew overnight, uh, flew in the morning to um, to some other part of the country um, for training or whatever, and had been warned they really shouldn't fly. There's a massive ice storm approaching. It's going to be hugely dangerous. Anyway, he forced it to happen. The plane crashed. They all died, apart from one guy. And there were two versions of the story. He either, um, he either was hung over and got up late, or his alarm clock didn't work. And, and, you know, it's that interesting thing of when you're reading about history, there's not much stuff about the the ice hockey team dying. It did happen, but there's not much about it because it was Soviet Russia in the late 1940s. And, you know, there are two or three different texts which sort of talk about it. And the one thing that differs is, was this guy hung over or did his alarm clock not work? <laughs> what do you think? Hung over or alarm? What do we reckon? I think probably alarm clock. I think you'd be too scared to... To, 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 miss out to, to mess up with too much vodka yeah probably. yeah i guess i'm asking how when, when you're writing a film that's going to be so popular as this was when you've got studios that are relying on you to pull in cash how contrived does some of the storyboarding process need to be when you're first fleshing out the script do you think right there needs to be something here there needs to be something here there needs to be something here how does that work um yeah, I mean, you, you, you sort of come up with those, you know, what's ha- what what's actually going to happen? You know, if you were going to describe this thing in 500 words, what is sort of happening? What's the plot? And you try and come up with some rough idea of the plot and then you try and work scenes, you know, work scenes together that create that plot. Because um, I suppose, you, you know, you kind of, you sort, you sort of shouldn't have anything in there that, that is pointless. Um and it's much harder to have to to get away with putting stuff in that that sort of feels like a character just on their own thinking about what's going on you know it's not like a novel where you can then you can then sort of push the story forward by them by sort of voicing what they are thinking or you know by having a character lying in bed thinking about a certain thing you're saying something that then is going to play into what we're then reading later on Whereas on a film, it's like you can have a character lying in bed and have some maybe some atmospheric music or something and slowly zoom in on their face. But do you need it? What are you getting out of it? And sometimes it's stuff like that that you feel like that is slowing it down. Just cut it out. It's so 
bloody hard to make a film. And I think as soon as you like have had any experience of that, whether it's something that you've made yourself for twenty pounds or if it's a like a big movie or TV show, you know, it's you realise how hard it is to actually make it. And you know that nobody sets out to make a bad film. Everyone is trying. The tragic thing is, obviously, probably more films than not just are, if not bad, then just kind of, meh. It's sad, but that's the risk. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a magic kind of concoction of the right actors, the right writers, the right director, the right producers and the right people with money who might be giving creative notes. Um, sometimes that can kill it, you know? If, I often think with those kind of broad American comedies, it, I wonder whether sometimes the director is, has given a, a pretty good cut over and then the studio has gone, no, cut all this, put this in, reshoot this, and it sucks the life out of it somehow. Um, I think with, you know, I don't know, Adam Sandler films, it's subjective, isn't it? Like, you, some some people love those films and there's a reason why they pop up on the front page of Netflix. They are yeah, what, no, I'm, I'm sure they're one of the not, most successful things on Netflix. I know, and it's not to, that was just the first name that popped into yeah, my head sure, that I yeah, know yeah. has made divisive films. Yeah, I'm just yeah. very curious at why some people can sit around a table, write jokes for a script get a lot of money to make a film and then it just doesn't land and sometimes this happens consistently to people and I was just trying to work out why simply why some people write funnier than others yeah I don't know I have no idea I mean it's strange isn't it um I guess take the flip side of that then Armando has consistently written critically acclaimed comedy why is that what is he doing there that's funny across death of stalin across veep across um, partridge i think i think the thing is is that if you look at all of his work um he's he's always worked with other people so it's that that's the trick you know it's it's not just one one voice having to sort of do all of every little bit of you know every little sentence and also all of the heavy lifting it's um it's a collaboration and that that's the key thing you know you can't you know Steve Coogan is Partridge but he's not he doesn't do it on his own Armando and Robin Neil Gibbons are all part of that process and it's that's why it's such an interesting character it's why it's so well written because it's lots of different clever minds looking at the same character and going what what else can we do what's better than this this is great thing someone said about like the comedy bus you know you the if you're on the comedy bus the easiest thing to do is get off at the first stop you know make the obvious joke and there are comedians who do that and I, I sometimes think about like those kind of broad American comedies feel a bit like that where they've got off at the first joke which is basically make a dick joke make a shit joke um, whereas if you just push it a bit further and that's the benefit of having lots of writers is that you know, one of us could write a shit joke, but then the next one, when it when the script gets passed to the next writer, they might look at that and they might go, oh, that that's made me think of something else that's not a shit joke. And it becomes a totally different line. And then someone might read that line and then rewrite rewrite it in a totally different direction. And you get, that's what, that's the benefit of having lots of writers working on a project. 
The key thing, though, is that you have to have someone in charge who has a clear vision because otherwise it just ends up being too many cooks, I think. I don't really like race comedy, to be honest. Um, I hate anything. You see, you don't really see it in British comedy, maybe with the exception of, of Ricky Gervais, but there's a, a common trope in American films where you'll have protagonists who are typically white and... Um, and then you'll have like a, a brilliant black comic actor who like steps into the scene playing a role of whatever reason. But then almost always it's pointed out that they're black. Mm. You're Barbie and he's black Ken, <laughs> you know, or it's like comparing him to someone who is, you know, like a black character in another film. You know, it's like you're our token Samuel L. Jackson, you know, if it's like an action comedy or something, you're like, why do they, why do you have to do that? And if you just cast that guy for the sake of your sort of mediocre joke, or if you cast him because he's a brilliant comic actor, who's now just being underused and being defined entirely by the color of his skin. And it, I, I fucking hate that, frankly. And it, and I always wonder what, what do the actors think about it? You know, do they, kind of quietly leave at the end of the day and go, ah, I take the money, I guess, and, you know, work is work. Um, I, so I wouldn't want to write anything like that. I feel like it's, it's, it's A, it's like, yeah, it's the first stop on the comedy bus. It's really easy to do. And, and it's, un- but B, it's unpleasant. And C, it's really divisive. Like, that's not what you should do with comedy. You mentioned Ricky Gervais there. Yeah. Do do you agree with him when he constantly says nothing is unjokeable? Yeah, I do. I think that it's just how you say the joke and what the joke is. Um, He's also not saying... He's not saying um, there won't be consequences. He's saying you should be able to make a joke. And I I think that's the the key thing is that, yeah, you, you, you should be able to say whatever you want to say. And... It's doing it within the right context. It's making it very clear to people that if you're making a joke that's risky um, for whatever reason, you, you can't just, you don't just put it on Twitter. You know, I don't know, you can get away with something in a stand-up set that you wouldn't get away with writing in 140 characters, you know, because there's the, con- there's the wider context of your six-minute set. Um, equally in a film, you can say something about a character that if it was just stripped out as a, as a line of dialogue or you know, a tweet or a sentence on its own could be hugely offensive. But in the context of that film about this character, this fictional character and the words are being said by another fictional character, it's totally fine. You know, it's just, no one even gets bothered by it. So what's it like for you? You're in quite a fortunate position, I'd, I'd suggest. Very I'm, much I, so. I'm not saying you've not worked hard to get there, but you know what I mean. It's, <laughs> yeah. and you're a young writer yeah. um, that's worked on a lot of your own projects, but you're also, as I say, writing for, for one of the biggest, definite British comedy minds, but it was also things that you have directly written have been successful across the ponds, massive money-making film over here and around the world with Death of Stalin. How do you think that's affected the way you write? What have you learned about things? Um, I think to keep rewriting and not to be precious. You know, it's one of the great things about, about working with this group of people is that you are constantly rewriting each other's work. So you just can't, you just can't get like, you can't fall in love with a joke really because 
the chances are the next time you see that script, when it comes back around to you, it'll be gone or it'll be, there'll be a slight variation on the joke or, you know, but you sort of just have to feel like, you know, the great thing about it is that everyone feels ownership over the whole thing rather than just like, oh, I did this funny bit coming up and then nothing for 10 minutes. Then I did this funny line coming up. You know, you just sort of feel like you've all contributed and it's all, it's all important. It all adds to the overall quality and the overall texture and the the funniness of it. I'm going to ask a question that will be painful for you because you've just described how you shouldn't take ownership of specific things that happen in the script. But what was the favourite joke that you remember writing for Stalin? Uh, It's the, it's Jeffrey Tambor has a moment where um, Stalin's son wants to um, give a speech at Stalin's funeral. Jeffrey's character says, uh, no problem. And then one of the others goes, hang on, wait, no, it is a problem. He goes, uh, what I meant to say was, uh, no, problem. <laughs> Ignore me, uh, no no problem. And it's one of those things that, as I when I wrote it, I remember thinking, I bet this doesn't stay in the scripts because it's, it's not like an obviously like punchy line. But, you know, the great, one of the, you know, brilliant things about what, what Arm does is that he can see, he can read something like that and go, coming from Jeffrey that'll be hilarious yeah I'm proud of that but you know it's everything around everything in that scene is like it's come from um all four of us so it's all I don't know you just sort of feel like I don't know it's great you just feel ownership over all of it that is it then thank you so much to Peter for chatting to me about the film uh, he promises me by the way that he sat down to work on a novel but as it goes with most people that make promises like that. I think he's been working on that novel for about eight years. Still, when it's finally finished, we'll have him back on the show to find out how he wrote that. Uh, His work is quite varied as well. He's been writing and directing his own movies and and shows since he was a teenager. So I've put the best links to his stuff over on the website writersroutine.com. Now, next week, we're back into the novels with the thriller and crime writer Julia Crouch. And it's a good, long, kind of scattered chat as well. Nice and casual. I won't spoil it, but we recorded this like on the Thursday before Good Friday in an office that was getting very excited that they had a long bank holiday weekend and we kind of joined in. We were sipping champagne a bit like Peter O'Toole. Uh, so you can imagine how that chat went. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram and I'd love to hear how this podcast has affected the way you write. Let me know that what I'm doing uh, more or less every week has been all worth it. Maybe you heard an interview on this show with an author uh, that inspired you to pick up a pen or open up a Word document which you had long since forgotten about and finish that book which you stopped writing years ago. I want to know. Maybe I'll read it out in the next few episodes of the show. You can let me know your story in the comments section by leaving Writer's Routine uh, a review on the iTunes podcast store. I'll be looking at that all week and I'll see you in about seven days' time. Until then, thanks for listening. Bye! Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.